Hello, and welcome back to Learn It From a Layman. I'm Carl Christensen. I'm back with Matt, and it's just us right now. Uh, we are going to be discussing World War II again tonight, continuing our podcast. It started as a miniseries and as more of an archive, uh, but we are doing World War II, uh, the second half of 1944, or according to our podcast naming conventions, World War II, Part 4, Part 2. Is that right, Matt? Yeah, that's pretty much, yes. <laughs> so, the return uh, of if, 1944. The return of 1944. Yes. The, be- the beginning of the end of World War II, kind of. Yeah. So, um, Matt, uh, go ahead and, and uh, enlighten us. Okay. So, when when last we left the world... We had pretty much covered June of 1944, except uh, we really hadn't gone much past the D-Day operations in Europe, which happened on June 6th. So I'm just going to pick up from June in Europe and go from there. And I'll try to maybe cover this in quarters. At this point in the war, I'm going to focus mostly on general Europe and general Pacific theaters rather than uh, delving into some of the more specific fronts. So anyway, this this will be focused mostly just on those two broad areas. And Europe will include both the Eastern and the Western fronts. So with that, we, we talked about D-Day last time. Um, we'll cover briefly some of the other events, uh, the major events in June of 1944. Can I ask Sorry. for a little refresher, at least for myself, if not the audience, who might actually be listening to these back to back? But why is it called D-Day? Yeah, so that's just uh, Army Convention, and it's a little odd. The D in D-Day stands for day, uh, like the H in H-hour stands for hour. Oh. I don't know. I'm not in the Army. <laughs> okay, but, well, we'll but that's why they do some... that. Have to have someone in the army answer what. Uh, I guess why so. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah, but uh, you know the quick refresher for what D-Day was. D-Day was the Americans, British, Canadians, the the Western Allies landing on the Normandy beaches of France, starting the major invasion of France to evict the Germans uh, towards the end of of World War Two, and that whole invasion set up what would be the end for uh, for Germany on the western side. Meanwhile, the Soviets have been picking up momentum on the eastern front. And from earlier in 1943 and 44, the Germans have been more or less on the defensive, fighting a retreat on the eastern front against the Soviets. Um, they continue to inflict greater losses on the Soviets than they take themselves. But there's more Soviets, and that's kind of their tactic is just numbers. So anyway, that's what's going on in Europe. In the Pacific, the Allies and uh, are, are moving on the Marianas Islands right now. Uh, the Battle of Saipan has sort of commenced uh and we'll talk a little bit more specifically about that. But really, the Allies are trying to 
take positions that will enable them to get closer to the Japanese mainland to strike the Japanese mainland while at the same time not necessarily engaging the largest Japanese strongholds but skipping around them cutting them off cutting the the sea lines of communication the supplies and so forth so that those fortresses like Rabaul and other areas are essentially taken out of the war just because they're skipped. So that's kind of what's been going on so far. So with that, June 1945 in Europe, uh, we'll start on the 10th. And this sees the first uh, raid of a, uh, I'm not actually sure how you'd classify it, but it's the V-1. It's an unmanned flying bomb that is launched from Germany. It's essentially a, a ground-launched cruise missile. It doesn't have the greatest guidance, but it just flies across the channel and explodes somewhere in England. And it's essentially a terror weapon. It's not able to be precisely targeted at anything, so it's fired at large population areas to explode and cause havoc. The V1s are, are launched with some frequency, throughout the summer until their launch sites are finally captured and overrun and destroyed in October of 1944, and we'll get to that. Um, meanwhile, in France and uh, the Normandy area, the advancing American and British forces have run into shrubs, uh, literally shrubs. Uh, they've run into the hedgerows, which are all throughout the agricultural areas of France through which they are trying to advance. And these are just walls of shrubs, which is, you know, a shrub is perfectly innocuous by itself, but it's also a great place to put a German sniper or a German armed with an anti-tank weapon or any number of other nasty things. Uh, not only that, but tanks back then are not particularly... I mean, a, a U.S. M1 Abrams uh, tank today weighs about 70 tons. It is a giant hunk of metal, and it will crush whatever is in its way. An M4 Sherman from back then is not 70 tons, and if you run it into a very thick French shrub, um, it gets stuck. And so the, the hedgerows were... Um, a major obstacle because the Germans were using them to to fight defensively and being very effective. You couldn't just power through them the same way. And eventually this led, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask why the French didn't do this on the way out, or maybe they did when they were being invaded. Oh, um, well, again, I mean, the French kind of keep in mind that the Germans invaded France going east to west and right. the Allies invaded France going west to east. The hedgerows are in the west. Got it. So they were the France. The French were already routed probably by the time they. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Got it. And I mean, the shrubs were a pain, but they were not insurmountable and they quickly became surmounted as ingenious Americans started taking scrap from German metal anti-tank obstacles that were all over the Normandy beaches and shaving them down and welding them in like giant scary blade shapes to the front of their tanks as no kidding giant hedge cutters 
and then you could power a tank through it. Nice. Um, but anyway, yeah, the, the hedgerows was kind of a pain in the neck in early July. Uh, speaking of pains in the neck, Hitler nearly got himself blown up in July. It was more of a pain in the leg. But on July 20th, you have Operation Valkyrie, which is kind of masterminded by a guy named Stauffenberg, who really wants to be in charge of the Reich. Uh, he also believes that the war is lost and they really need to negotiate a peace with the Western allies, not the Soviets, as quickly as they can. Now, his peace ideas are a little bit unknown because he did not survive, but it's expected that he was thinking, you know, we can keep the gains, the the territories we've annexed. We'll just get the allies to stop fighting us. If only we can get this Fuhrer out of the way. And so at a staff meeting on the 20th of July, Stauffenberg puts a, a suitcase bomb in the conference room nuzzles it over to the Fuhrer's leg, uh, excuses himself to go take a phone call. One of, Fuhr- the, one of Hitler's aides um, then like kicks the suitcase and moves it behind the leg of the conference table, uh, which saves Hitler's life, unfortunately. The bomb goes off. The aide is killed. Everybody's eardrums are damaged. Um, I think three people died over the coming days. But Hitler, other than being rattled, is and and having a perforated eardrum is largely fine um the problem is now uh stauffenberg has he's got all of these follow-on plans for a coup but now it's starting to come out uh hey hitler's actually still alive he's not dead well the coup's still going forward no it's not yes it is um and and because of that confusion the coup never actually really gets anywhere um again Maybe, unfortunately, I don't I mean, I don't know how it would have been dealing with a Stauffenberg versus a Hitler, but whatever. Anyway, um, the point is the coup fails. Uh, Hitler, not known for being, um, you know, uh, a nice guy, uh, orders that anyone. Yeah. Anyone remotely suspicious of being connected to this plot is to be. um dealt with uh he anyone who is who is found guilty in the kangaroo courts that are subsequently set up is to be quote hung like a dog uh and the gestapo kind of goes wild on this they not only you know round up everyone that they can find that they have actual suspicion of but they also settle a bunch of their old scores and so something like almost 5000 people are executed uh, and over 7,000 are arrested in the coming days. Um, and, and this isn't just the plotters. This is the families of the plotters. So he goes after anyone connected to anyone who is potentially part of this. I think the phrase blood guilt is used by Hitler. Yeah. Again, not known for being a very nice dude. Um, one of the casualties of all of this is Field Marshal Erwin Rommel who our listeners will remember was a very capable, unfortunately capable general and played havoc with the allies down in Africa. Well, he is implicated in the July 20th plot. I don't know if he was actually part of it or not. Uh, But anyway, he is allowed instead of being hung like a dog to commit suicide to protect his family. So uh, after that, 
Germany doesn't lose the Führer, but they do lose one of their best generals out yeah. of this. Now, wait, did, did Stauffenberg, did they, they got him as well? Then? Oh, yeah. Stauffenberg was uh, arrested, shot, all, all the things. Um, okay. Now, if I'm maybe shot, maybe hung, I don't remember. Uh, there was a Tom Cruise mo- movie made of this incident. Yes, as there? we know, the best way to learn about history is to watch Hollywood films about stuff. Uh, Tom yes. Cruise movies specifically. I think it's Operation Valkyrie. Yeah, I think it's so. maybe the name of the film. But yeah, um, the portrayal of Stauffenberg as having only one eye is accurate. He was actually uh, uh, pretty physically beat up. Um, but anyway, that, that happens in July couple other things. Last time we talked about the Battle of uh, Narva, 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 um, up in Estonia. And the 29th sees an event that I kind of alluded to back then, um, where the Germans and the Estonians together fight two major engagements where they repulse the Russians. Uh, and they, they fall back to these different defensive lines. On the 29th, they've fallen back to their secondary defense line. The Russians, or or, I'm sorry, the Soviets uh, attack and they're repulsed again. And this defeat allows much of the the remaining German forces to kind of evacuate that area. uh, And it delays the Soviet Baltic advances up into September. The other part of this is that the Soviets had really wanted to be able to push through and uh, and have access to Finland, and they weren't able to do that because of how Narwa and the defenders there held. Um, I also mentioned last time that Finland was in the middle of a fight with the Soviets, and they actually negotiated a ceasefire um shortly after this, and some of the terms of that ceasefire were enabled by the fact that the Soviets had been repulsed at Narva, and they didn't have the accesses into Finland that would have been very difficult for the Finns to deal with. Um, and so that, you know, that's another thing going on over there. Uh, another small note, July 26th sees the first aerial victory, sort of, of a jet fighter in combat where a German Messerschmitt 262 damages a British de Havilland Mosquito. Uh, And for those of you who are familiar with the de Havilland Mosquito, which is probably nobody, um, it it was renowned for being nearly untouchable. It was not, it was a, a light bomber and or reconnaissance aircraft, and it was blazing fast. Nothing could keep up with it until this jet-powered thing comes along and easily keeps up with it and and does a bunch of damage. Uh, So new chapter in aerial warfare opens up in July of 1944. But the big, big thing that happens in the summer over here, especially, uh, well, on the Eastern Front, uh, starts on the 22nd of June, and this is Operation Bagration. I may be pronouncing it wrong. I'm sorry, I don't know my my Russian pronunciation, but this is a major Soviet offensive into Belarus and surrounding areas. Uh, and it is absolutely colossal in its scale. There are over 2 million combatants here on, uh, when, when totaled together. 
And it ends up being the single worst defeat that the Germans experience. Uh, it is they they lose a colossal amount of personnel. In fact, they lose about 25% of their Eastern Front manpower. And when you're facing the Soviet hordes, you can't do without 25% of your people. And this is um, it's it's actually where Soviet doctrine is used to more or less strategically successful effect. Uh, tactically, it's an absolute bloodbath. It is a terrible thing to be a Soviet soldier during Operation Bagration. Um, but the idea is you break through the German lines and then you just keep going and you press into the rear and you encircle whatever groups you can find. And during Operation Bagration, the Russians and the their you know, other Soviet constituents encircle very large German formations, divisions, and even army groups. And out of all of this, there are 34 German divisions at the beginning of this. And at the end of it, there are six. There are, uh, oh yeah, there's about 400,000 German casualties. Um, and, and the Germans are num- outnumbered about three or four to one. Uh, depending on your figures, just somewhere in there. Um, and, you know, you look at 400,000 German casualties and you think that's catastrophic, and it totally is. On the Soviet side, there are about 700,000 casualties. Um, wow. Yeah, and this is a Soviet victory. Um but yeah, they lose uh, about 180,000 killed or missing in action and another 590,000 wounded, uh, depending on the source that you're looking at. Uh, strategically, this is a massive Soviet success. They liberate Minsk, Minsk in Belarus in early July. Uh, they go into Vilnius on the 13th. Um, and not only do they – there are essentially three German army groups, uh, I believe – on the Eastern Front, uh, North, Center, and South. And at the end of this, Army Group Center is completely destroyed. Um, even worse for the Germans, Army, well, not even worse, but adding to it, Army Group North is now completely cut off. It is isolated in what becomes known as the Corland Pocket. So the Germans have lost 400,000 casualties, but they've also got 300,000 more that are now stuck in Corland. And can't get anywhere, can't come back to defend Germany. Uh, they are essentially out of the war. And, and, and they are right up until the end when, when 200,000 of them surrender to the Soviets in May of 1945. Spoilers, uh, Germany <laughs> does lose. So that, I think, that's... I think, we, I think we don't have to give spoiler alerts for... Uh, no. But we well, can't. That, we we could, but but that's June and July in Europe, and um, Operation Bagration goes until uh, about the middle of August, and it is, I mean, there have been a number of turning points and a number of pivot points. Operation Bagration isn't so much a pivot point as it is just a crush point, where the Germans' military capability on the Eastern Front is absolutely devastated. 
I'd be interested and probably beyond the scope of the stuff that you've looked into. But I mean, you've said multiple times in these podcasts in the past, like that the Soviet doctrine is essentially just keep throwing bodies at them. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously they have to, this has to have been like uh, Russia's military has to have, have been uh, draft based, right? They have to have been cons- conscripting these people into the the service oh yeah during during world war ii this was the norm everybody was being drafted everywhere all the time right if you were male and and in in the case of the soviet union females uh served in combat roles as well interestingly enough um but especially if you were male and old enough to like pull a trigger uh and not old enough to be you know incapable of pulling a trigger you were eligible for frontline service so now i guess that's so my my question is, is in the united states world war ii um military operations largely had the support of the population uh at home yes uh, was that the case in russia as well if, if they're having oh yeah i mean their bodies just chucked at people is right. that ever blowing back on the on the on the you know the military well, not notably, because, again, um, I- information is much easier to control back then because there's no Internet. Um, you have a cult of personality built up around Stalin. Uh, so everybody is all ready to get in line to follow Uncle Joe. And if you weren't, he already purged you back in the 30s. Um, and I wish that was funny, but right. it's, it's totally it's, true. Yes. Yeah. So and not only that, but yeah, the Germans actually invaded Russia and caused horrific suffering and the Russians were out for blood. This wasn't something where they needed to be convinced to pick up a rifle and fight. They wanted the Germans dead. Uh, And so, yeah, I don't imagine that they would have had the same challenges as they would have if, say, they decided to unjustly invade another country for no reason other than to glorify some idiot's ego. Hmm. But, you know. Well, that's a... Uh, that's a separate topic. It is a separate topic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You, can, you can cut that if you feel like it. But, yeah. Well, I probably won't, but we'll probably just yeah, the, it this was Ukrainian listeners, so... Yeah. And Slava Ukraini. Um, anyway, the Soviets are... are wearing down the germans uh, again they lose more people in this battle than the germans do and it's still a victory because they just have that many more people um but moving on into august now in europe um there there's oh man oh, everything russian just continues to be terrible um so this <laughs> starts in poland we've got like two russian listeners also so well um. hmm. <laughs> Um, we say so truth. So, all right, continue. We try. Anyway, we um, try. in in Warsaw, Warsaw is not particularly happy that there's a bunch of Germans running around there. Now, the fact that Operation Bagration is being so successful in just hammering the Germans to pieces is very exciting to the Polish, who really don't like the Germans that are occupying their city and who have killed many of them. Uh, and in fact, a, a significant percentage of Poland, something like 15 percent of, of Warsaw, has been 
leveled. And and so you can imagine that they're not thrilled to have Germans running around there. Well, the Red Army is making fantastic progress and is actually approaching Warsaw at this point. And so on August 1st, the resistance in Warsaw really begins resisting, and you have the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And this is where a several thousand Poles, well, several dozen thousand Poles, um, get together and start taking it to the local Germans, counting on reinforcements from the outside, which never come. Uh, and this ends up being a horrific disaster uh, in Warsaw. It's it's one of the great crimes of, well, ever. Um, anyway, a, a number of Germans are killed. Neat. Uh, but, but the uprising is crushed. Um, about 15,000 Polish re- resistance fighters are killed outright. Uh, a bunch more are wounded. Another 15,000 are taken prisoner, and you can imagine how how things go for them. And then, because an uprising happened in your city, between 150 and 200,000 people are just executed by the Germans, um, including something called the Wola Massacre, where the entire sector of the city, known as Wola, was purged. Uh, where the Germans literally killed anything that moved under Hitler's orders, uh, going so far as to going through hospitals, killing all the doctors, killing all the patients in the beds. And, I mean, that was what they did. Um, and then, because 15% of a city's buildings being flattened isn't enough, 25% of Warsaw's buildings were destroyed during combat operations. And then, to make sure that you never, ever do this again, they flattened another 35% of the city after that. So by the by the end of the war, 85% of Warsaw is gone in terms of buildings. Uh, meanwhile, the Red Army is parked about 10 kilometers away across the river, sitting there, not doing, not advancing. They have advanced. They have now parked. Um, and this is, there. there is some controversy as to what the Russian or Soviet intentions were at this time. Did they have the logistics capability to move on to Warsaw? Did they have to go deal with some diversionary thing? Or were they just waiting to get the Poles kind of, I don't even know what the word would be, killed so that the communist Polish people that they wanted to be in charge could take over more easily anyway? Theories abound. Uh, Regardless, it was an utter failure of the Allies to support the Warsaw uh, resistance, and many, many, many thousands of people died because of it. Now, did this this resistance happen because um, they had heard that there were advances being made by the Allies? Yeah, I mean, the the Germans were on the back foot. They were scared. Things were not going well for them, and now was the time to seize the day. Mm. And, you know, the Red Army is is coming. Uh, And in fact, uh, one group, about uh, how many people? Uh, A little over a thousand people uh, from the first Polish army, which was this this communist formation 
of Poles that were in the Red Army, uh, they came across the river uh, into Warsaw, and and nobody followed them. Hmm. So neat. All right. Uh, yeah. That so that was the first of August. One of one of the worst things. Um, huh. I mean, in in a war filled with horrific events and war crimes. Uh, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and its repression was among the worst. Um, so, uh, in some good news, on the 4th, Florence, Italy is liberated. Um, but more things are going on in France in August. Uh, and, and there's really two parts to this. Um, on the 15th of August, the Allies launch Operation Dragoon, which is another invasion, amphibious invasion of France, this time on the southern Mediterranean coast. And this goes quite a bit more smoothly. Um, In fact, this operation was supposed to happen alongside Overlord, but it had to be delayed. Um, The French pushed for it to happen anyway, and it did, and it was comprised largely of French troops. And in four weeks, they took most of southern France. Um, The Germans did not necessarily stay and fight. They did a fighting retreat. And so about 80,000 or so Germans, um, maybe maybe not that much. That's the wrong number. Scratch that. Anyway, most of the German units escaped that area. But still, that was the liberation of southern France. Um, Back in mid-August as well, starting on about the 12th, the Allies started forming what was com- what came to be known as the Filet Pocket. And this was a combination of Canadian troops on the north, uh, British troops on the west, and American troops on the south, forming an encirclement of the German, uh, the remaining German forces in the Normandy area. And by the, about the 19th, um, the, the Germans kind of realized they were being encircled, and they started to withdraw on the 17th of August. But that little formation, that encirclement, was closed on the 19th, and about 50,000 Germans were trapped in there, uh, and another 10,000 were killed. And so, and the remaining, the remainder of the the German army group there retreated across the Seine, and um, that that was essentially the end of Operation Overlord in the Normandy area when the Allies were able to create and then close the fillet pocket. Um, this is I, I am going to kind of skip along through August. There are some other significant events uh, on the 20th. The Soviets enter Romania and on the 23rd, Romania switches sides to join the Allies. Um, on the 25th, Paris is liberated, and there's there's kind of a, a one bright spot here. The German general who is occupying Paris repeatedly defies orders from Hitler to torch the city. Uh, he does not do that. He does not destroy the bridges. He simply surrenders, and on the 26th, Charles de Gaulle and his free French forces have their victory parade down the Champs-Élysées, with minor sniper fire, but it's it's still a great moment. Uh, and minor so par- sniper fire, uh, you know, it's not the not a parade I'm familiar with, but no. Okay. But um, anyway, Paris is liberated on the 25th. Um, shortly thereafter, 
back in the Dragoon sector on the 28th of August, uh, Toulon and Marseille surrender and are liberated. Um, with that, we'll jump over to the Pacific quick, and we'll talk about the Battle of Saipan. Um, I, <clears throat> excuse me. I mentioned this during the last podcast. This is part of the Marianas Islands campaign. But on July 6th, the Americans land on Saipan, and they secure it by the 9th. But this is a, a pretty grim battle where the Japanese essentially fight to the last man. And the, this is the site of the largest bonsai charge of the war, where 4,300 Japanese soldiers uh, who are at this point cornered, some of them don't have weapons or ammo or, or anything. Some of them are injured and on crutches. They just charge. And the charge kills 400 Americans, but it uh, all almost everyone is lost. Um, there are the total Japanese losses are about 30,000 and they're almost all KIA. Uh, in the entire campaign uh, on Saipan, the Americans land with 71,000 Marines and soldiers. Uh, they lose almost 3,000 and, and another 10,000 wounded. Uh, but they take Saipan in a matter of days. And this is a crushing blow to Japanese morale. And it's one of the first times, it is the first time that a defeat is publicly and honestly reported in mainland Japan. And the fallout is so bad that uh, Tojo resigns uh, as, as the um, essentially the head of government, the, the prime minister or whatever he was, next to the emperor. Um, and at, at this point, the Japanese kind of know that it's only a matter of time now um within a few months b-29 super fortress bombers operating out of saipan will actually be bombing japan uh, meanwhile four days later b-29s bomb tokyo from other bases uh and that when did is the, <clears throat> sorry when did the b-29s join the pacific uh fl fleet yeah, the, the B-29s were moved into into the Pacific during 1944, and earlier they launched their first air raids on Japan. Uh, the 10th was the first time that Tokyo was bombed since the Doolittle raid. But the B-29 Superfortress, um, at the time it was a marvel of engineering. It had a much longer range and could carry a much greater bomb load than anything, you know, nothing was close to it. Right. in terms of how much it could carry how far. And so they would fly from uh, bases down in China uh, or, or down in the China-Burma-India theater and bomb Japanese targets. And then as more and more Pacific islands closer to Japan were taken, like in the Marianas, they would fly out of, out of those islands, um, Tinian, Saipan, uh, other places, Okinawa. Um, and, and you see that happen throughout the remainder of the war. Um, in August in the Pacific, a critical decision is made on the 9th, where President Roosevelt is presented with two plans. One by Admiral Nimitz, who is the commander of naval forces in the Pacific, who says the way into Japan is through Taiwan, or Formosa at the time. And the other by General MacArthur, 
who famously said, I shall return when he was leaving the Philippines. And so his plan is we're going through the Philippines. Roosevelt selects MacArthur's plan on August 9th, and that sets the American course for how we're going to head into Japan. Um, you know, potentially some pretty significant implications for history. What would have happened if we had gone through Formosa, Taiwan, instead of the Philippines? Yeah. Um, On the 10th of August, the U.S. takes Guam, and now all of the Marianas Islands are in American hands. And again, you start to see air air bases with long-range U.S. bombers operating out of these newly captured islands. Uh, So let's go into September and go back to Europe for this. Um, September sees a lot of of progress uh, in Europe. Uh, Bagration is continuing on here. Um, I'm sorry, no, Bagration ended up in August. The Soviets in general are continuing on here, making life terrible for the Germans on the Eastern Front. Um, On the Western Front, on the 2nd of September, the Allies enter Belgium. Uh, Brussels is liberated on the 3rd by the British, and they hit Antwerp on the 5th, liberating that one as well. The Belgian government, which has been in exile in London for most of the war, returns on the 8th. Um, this is a pretty significant event for for the Western Allies. Also somewhat significant is that even though Antwerp is taken on the 5th, 80,000 Germans evacuate and are not stopped. And so now there's still 80,000 Germans out there that you're going to have to deal with sooner or later. And they will be dealt with sooner or later. Uh, I mentioned last time the the Finnish USSR front, and, and I'll refer you back to our podcast, 1944 Part 1, to see how that went. But September is where you have kind of the final ceasefire between Finland and the USSR during World War II. That allows the USSR to, again, refocus their efforts from expanding into Finland to expanding down through the Baltics and down into Germany. Uh, and so they they start that up. Now, I mentioned the V-1 cruise missile weapon. Well, the Germans don't stop there. They also launched the first ballistic missile, which is the V-2, uh, and it is simply that. It is a missile that they fire straight up into the air in a ballistic arc that plonks down with limited guidance somewhere in, hopefully, if you're German, somewhere in, in a crowded area in London. Again, not precise targeting. This is just sent over to do damage. You know, we would never see anything like that happening today. <sighs> Anyway, a theme here. I know it's uh, like we're seeing World War Two era tactics play out and it's terrible. Um, but anyway, the, the V2s are a pain um, and, and they do cause significant harm and, and fatalities. At one point, the Germans are launching eight of these things a day. And these are large missiles with large explosive payloads that they can get to come down in London or the surrounding areas. And, I mean, who are you going to hit there? The the military isn't there. The military is fighting its way through France, Belgium, and now starting into Germany. You're going to just hit civilians. And so that's what 
the Germans are doing. Um, but with that, September continues on. Luxembourg is liberated on the 10th. Uh, the USSR shifts their attention now that Finland has got a ceasefire with them. On, on the 14th of September, they begin their offensive through the Balkans. And this is kind of the follow-on to the Narva battles that delayed them for so long. Well, the Soviets surged forwards again. They moved through Estonia. Um, the the Germans and, and many of the Estonian resistance uh, flee or are evacuated, go to Sweden. Um, and, and the Soviets kind of they really start taking the Baltics now. The other big event for September is Operation Mart Market Garden, uh, where a this is one of the largest airborne operations in history, but about 34,000 British and American troops, paratroopers, are dropped or glided in um, in the areas of Eindhoven and Nijmegen, and, and they actually succeed in taking those areas. And this is due to General uh, or Field Marshal Montgomery, uh, who is the commander of all the ground forces in Europe. He really wants a really sharp thrust straight into Germany. And if they can seize a, a bridge crossing over the Rhine River, then that simplifies their logistics quite a bit, and they can really start moving forces in a spear thrust towards Berlin. Eisenhower is not a fan of this. He thinks that if you dive that deeply into enemy territory, you're going to get surrounded and killed. Nevertheless, he authorizes Operation Market Garden, and it goes off not so great. Uh, they A couple cities are liberated, but the... The paratroopers are never able to secure a bridge across the Rhine. Uh, and in fact, out of the 10,000 British paratroopers that are dropped in, 8,000 are captured with um, you know, 80% casualty rates. Yeah, that's brutal. Yeah, I'm sorry, 6,000 captured, another 2,000 is casualties. So, you know, 80% combat losses there. A question is is this oh, like the, Tim? Yeah, hi. <laughs> I'm here. This, this is where a bridge too far comes from. I was just going to ask that. Okay. Yes, yes, it is. So. The the movie and the saying that this was overextending and they just couldn't they they couldn't get it. Now the Germans did lose a bunch of casualties, but uh, ultimately the idea to open up this thrust into Berlin and you know Berlin by Christmas was the hope. That was not to be. Um, so with that, we'll move into October, where the Canadians on the 5th enter the Netherlands. Uh, the Soviets enter Hungary the same day. And uh, the the Hungarian president, uh, Admiral Horthy, who has been, you know, he's, he's not had a great time during this war. The Germans kind of took control in our last podcast. Well, now the Soviets are taking control, and he's overthrown on the 15th. Um, another part to this that is, it, it's another sad chapter. Um, now, who am I to cast judgment? Well, I'm a guy living in 2022 with the realities of 2022. But on October 9th, the Allies hold the Moscow Conference, and here Churchill and Stalin start discussing post-war spheres of influence. 
And this is where you really start to see the idea that, okay, Soviets, you guys can have this sphere of influence in Eastern Europe, and we're going to have this sphere of influence in Western Europe. Um, kind of ignoring the right to self-determination by those areas. Uh, and it's the type of thing that leads into the Cold War and leads into the Soviet Union that we all knew for so long and the Russia that we know now. So that's, uh, that's so it, a fun those, thing from October. Those initial talks were just between Churchill and Stalin? Uh, uh, I, I'd have to read more deeply into it to see how much Roosevelt was involved. Roosevelt, for some reason, seemed to trust Stalin a lot more than anyone should ever have trusted Stalin. Um, <laughs> what grounds did he have to trust this man? I don't know, but keep in mind, this was the guy who managed to justify his way into four terms as president of the United States. Now, no matter how many times you can walk out, wheel yourself out onto the deck of a battleship to watch an incoming torpedo, as cool as that may be, uh, subverting the Constitution is another thing. So whatever. Uh, anyway, the, the, the this was... Yeah. Who am I to cast judgment? Well, I'm a guy living in 2022 casting judgment. <laughs> Moving on away from what's worth. Yes. All right. <laughs> yeah. So some good news. Athens is liberated on the 12th uh, by a local resistance force, a local communist resistance force. Uh, the Brits then enter Athens on the 14th. And by the 4th of November, Greece is pretty much free of the axis. Uh also, going back to October, on the 18th, Hitler issues his uh, his declaration forming the Volkssturm, or the People's Sturm. I don't know what a Sturm is, but anyway, uh, this is basically that kind of what I alluded to earlier. If you can hold a gun, you're in. And basically, any any male 16 to 60 is now requested to come forward and protect the fatherland because it's really bad uh, and it continues to get worse. Probably a very um, strong request as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not a request. It's a uh, yeah. And, we'll and keep this. in mind also, this isn't necessarily something that your average German is going to resist because no kidding, the red hordes are right there. And so all of these forces are. I mean, they're out for blood, and they don't need much convincing much of the time. Um, and it's, right. I mean, this really is truly terrible. Um, so let's go to the Pacific, because that's also terrible. Um, September in the Pacific. Um, on the 15th of September... Um, the, the U.S., uh, one Marine division and uh, an army group land on Peleliu. I may be pronouncing that wrong. Um, but this is an island in the Pacific that they want to clear because of the potential that, it, that Japanese forces there could menace the upcoming invasions of the Philippines. Now, it turns out that the Japanese don't really have the capable or the the capability to do anything with their forces on Peleliu that would make a difference. Um, nonetheless, 
we go in and it is the hardest battle that the U.S. fights during the war in terms of the numbers of, of people that we have versus people that we lose. Uh, and out of our force of about 47,000 people, nine and a half thousand are casualties, either killed or wounded or missing. Um, as a fraction, that's pretty significant. Um, and, and this is against a Japanese garrison of a, a little under 11,000. Um, of those 11,000, 400 are captured. And that's it. Yeah. Um it it is uh, absolutely fight to the last man. Um, post-war statisticians have looked at the numbers of bullets that we used to kill a single Japanese soldier, and it is in the thousands uh, per shot. There no were way. over a hundred thousand hand grenades thrown. A hundred? Wait, did you say a hundred thousand? Yeah, a lot of hand grenades. <laughs> oh my um, and uh, this was the worst thing. Um, but. Pelelu eventually falls. Um, it's just, and afterwards, though, the question is, was it worth it? You know, strategically, did it matter? And the answer kind of is, well, no, it didn't. Did we know that at the time? Maybe not. But but that was that was a difficult time. Um, moving on to October in the Pacific. Um, with Pelelu secured and realizing that it probably didn't matter, the invasion of the Philippines really kicks off. And the big campaign here is the Battle of Leyte Gulf. And I apologize if, I've, if I'm mispronouncing Leyte, 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 I don't know, uh, but Leyte Gulf. And this is fought on the through the 23rd to 26th of October. The landings in the Philippines actually go pretty decently. But the Japanese know that they have to do something about this. They can't cede the Philippines. And so they launch three separate major forces to try to destroy the American fleet that is now parked in Leyte Gulf <clears throat> supporting these landings. And there is a northern force, the idea being that it's a light force with some light carriers that is essentially a decoy. They're going to attract the attention of the American commander, uh, Bull Halsey, and draw off the bulk of his battleship forces. Meanwhile, south, the southern and center forces, which are most of the remaining Japanese battleships and capital ships, are going to come in and obliterate all of the landing craft and everything that's left. And this goes un scarily close to how the Japanese want it to go. Uh, but there is is just weird stuff on all sides. And Leyte Gulf can really be broken into a series of about five different engagements. Um, and, and the first one is th this all really kicks off on October 12th when Halsey's forces attack Thailand, uh, Taiwan, Formosa, and uh, the Ryukyu Islands. And they they take out most of the Japanese aircraft there. They take out about 600 planes. And with that, they then withdraw towards the Philippines. The Japanese now know, okay, they're going for the Philippines. And so they launch these three fleets and they know that this is a, a do or die. This is a, I mean, we, we win here or we're done. Um, on the 23rd, the, the central force is spotted 
in the Palawan Passage by two U.S. submarines, the Darter and the Dace, who promptly launch a whole bunch of torpedoes and sink a couple cruisers, including the flagship of the Japanese Admiral Kirita, who has to swim until he is rescued. Um, Another Japanese ship is damaged and withdraws. Uh, The two submarines follow that ship and its uh, escorts and try to get another attack when one of them runs aground. Uh, the other one rescues the crew, but, you know, that's the end of that shadowing operation. Um, so that is the 23rd of October. On the 24th, there, the the Battle of the Sibuyan Sea is, really starts the action off. Um, Central Force comes in with Admiral Kirita and the giant battleship Musashi, one of the two largest battleships ever built. Uh, the bore diameter of the main armament was 18 inches. That is a shell 18 inches wide. Wow. Now you might think that's a lot. U.S. shells were 16 inches wide. Two-inch difference, but still just giant shells. Mm. Um, anyway, uh, significant surface engagement between these battleships uh, and and their air cover the USS Princeton is a light carrier. It's lost during that battle, but the Musashi is sunk. And Hall, uh, Kirita withdraws with his remaining battleships. At this point, Admiral Halsey, the U.S. commander, thinks that Kirita is done because he's sailing away. And so Halsey puts together his plans of what he's going to do next, and he starts to come up with an idea for something that he's going to call Task Force 34. And he sends out a message saying, hey, if the Japanese make another attack, we're going to form Task Force 34, and it's going to consist of a bunch of battleships and heavy cruisers and a whole bunch of destroyers and things, and they're going to uh, protect this area um, and, and protect all of our landing craft. Unfortunately, due to a whole bunch of communication snafus, the way that the message is relayed is interpreted by many, including Admiral Nimitz, the commander of the entire Pacific Fleet, as saying, we have formed Task Force 34 now, and we have a large group of battleships and ships and destroyers and things all ready to protect the the landing forces in Leyte Gulf. And Halsey later sends out a clarification saying, uh, Task Force 34 will be formed when I order it, But that communication does not get out to everyone because it's sent out over uh, voice radio instead of other other means. And so, unfortunately, we now have a very dangerous situation where Admiral Kincaid of the 7th Fleet has detached a number of his destroyers to this imaginary Task Force 34, thinking that they're part of a larger force, including heavy U.S. battleships. Meanwhile, Northern Force has been floating around to the north, the Northern Japanese Force, futilely trying to get themselves found by the Americans so that the Americans will chase after them. And this has not gone off at all. And so they're they're about beside themselves because they can't get found. Um, and then on the 25th, you have the next engagement, Southern Force, is coming up the Surigao Strait. The Americans find them here with uh, screening 
PT boats, uh, patrol torpedo boats. And in the strait, you can't maneuver too far. I mean, it's a strait. And the Japanese ships are just caught in here. The PT boats make torpedo runs that actually don't do anything. Uh, but then American destroyers make torpedo runs, and they are pretty devastating. Uh, a, a Japanese heavy ship is the the Fuso is sunk outright. Another battleship, the Yamashiro, is hit, and then the American southern battleship screen, uh, six battleships, including five Pearl Harbor veterans, opens up on the southern force and just tears them to pieces. The the Japanese battleship Yamashiro is sunk. Um, the cruiser Mogami is forced to retreat. And um, in the retreat, the southern force is kind of split into two. Uh, the Japanese have a front southern force and a rear southern force. The front southern force, what is left of it, runs into the rear southern force coming up the strait, literally, as the Mogami is rammed by one of the rear force ships and is lost. Uh, southern force pretty much calls it quits at that point, turns around and, and heads back, um, just overwhelmed with firepower. Later that afternoon... Um, or rather, uh, I guess it was the afternoon of the preceding day, the 24th, the Northern Force finally gets noticed. And Halsey says, we are going after these guys. This is definitely the main Japanese force, because remember, uh, Central Force has withdrawn. Southern Force has not been found yet. And uh, Northern Force actually com contains a couple Japanese carriers. And so he takes... Most of his battleship forces outside of that southern group that hits southern force the next day and sprints off toward the northern force. Um, this leaves the American center defended by the imaginary Task Force 34, which only exists as far as the forces that Admiral Kincaid sent to it, thinking that it was a thing. Um and it's three light carriers, three destroyers, and a destroyer escort. That's not a lot. Um, meanwhile, Admiral Kirita of the Japanese Central Force has turned around and is coming back. And on the 25th, you have one of the strangest and most heroic battles in the history of any Navy ever. As Central Force appears and the only thing standing between the American landing ships uh, that are loading material into the Philippines are, are three destroyers and a couple escort carriers facing down multiple battleships, heavy cruisers, and, and a fleet of Japanese destroyers. And the, the American destroyers just charge. Uh, it is just about the most heroic thing that the U.S. Navy has ever done. Um, I mean, U.S. Navy is great. They do a lot of good things. But three destroyers and a destroyer escort, which is like a destroyer but way smaller, um, literally charge at battleships. Um, the destroyers are, well, destroyed uh, in short order. But the ferocity of the attack, uh, the, the accuracy of their fire, the fact that they actually land some hits – uh, the fact that carriers are engaging cruisers with their surface-to-surface -surface weapons 
uh, and that they don't give is enough to dissuade Kurita uh, and and persuade him that he's facing a much larger force because there is no way the Americans would be fighting like this if they didn't have a much bigger force behind them. And he turns around and he withdraws. Uh, The Americans lose one of the light carriers out of it, plus two destroyers and the destroyer escort. Um, But it is a miraculous save for the American invasion of the Philippines. Meanwhile, Halsey, with his battleship force, is, is actually caught up to the northern, the Japanese northern force. And after he gets a very angry message from Nimitz asking, where on earth are you? Um, he pretty much torches northern force. Uh, three carriers and a destroyer are taken out. Um, but the Battle of Leyte Gulf ends in an American victory that very quickly could have turned into an absolute American disaster. Uh, and and that is pretty much the end of Japanese hopes for the Pacific, even more so than uh, the loss of um, of uh, I'm sorry, the island earlier, Saipan. Saipan. Pardon That's my forgetfulness. One. Yeah. Um, shortly, I mean, in the middle of this going on, the B-29 raids are now really stepping up and they're flying from New Islands, from Tinian, from everywhere else. And uh, they're now hitting the Japanese homelands. And through December, um, this continues on. Uh, and so with that, we'll kind of wrap up jumping back to Europe for December and, and November. And November is actually... Um, there's not a lot. The Soviets continue to advance and the Americans continue to advance uh, with the British and the Canadians through France and through Western Europe up to to the German border, up to the Siegfried line and even into Germany at Aachen. Uh, on the 20th of November, Hitler moves from his wartime headquarters at Rastenburg uh, down to Berlin and he, he will stay in Berlin for the rest of the war shortly moving to the bunker where where he dies um spoilers again for when we get to may of 1945 um but the big thing going on in europe is uh the battles in the hertgen forest which is just east of the belgian border uh the germans are trying to mount a defense here and they're actually succeeding and the U.S. Army suffers a significant number of casualties, between 33 and 55,000 either killed, wounded, or missing, um, and, or, or taken prisoner. Uh, and, and the Germans likewise suffer significant casualties, about 28,000. But the big thing that this leads to is the Battle of the Bulge, which is where one day the Germans, instead of defending, they go on the offensive. And this blitz offense annihilates an American division and it um, it creates a massive bulge in the American lines. And this is, it, it's very, very dangerous for a while. Uh, one of the keys is the Belgian town of Bastogne, which, um, you know, the Battle of the Bulge kicks off on December 16th. Um, by just before Christmas, the Germans are asking the American commander of forces in Bastogne, General McAuliffe, uh, hey, why don't you come over and we can talk surrender? 
And McAuliffe sends a legendary U.S. military reply to the Germans. He sends the single word nuts. Um, now, I guess, All right. I mean, that's funny. I guess in, in 1944, it was hilarious. Uh, this is a huge morale boost to the Americans, uh, and they hold Bastogne. Um, and on the 23rd of December, the skies clear up, and suddenly the Americans have air support again. On the 24th, they launch a counterattack. And on the 26th, the siege of Bastogne is broken by General Patton's 3rd Army as his tanks roll into the area. And that is the end of the German offensive in the Battle of the Bulge. Um, and with that, that is pretty much the end of 1944. The Allies have not gotten to Berlin by Christmas, but the Germans are very much on the back foot on both the Western and the Eastern fronts. Uh, the Japanese are confronting that, yes, we've hit the beginning of the end. We are kind of in the middle of the end now. The Philippines, the Marianas are all in American hands, and American long-range bombers are, have begun devastating mainland Japanese cities and, and war-making capabilities and population centers. Um, we'll talk about this more in uh, when we talk about 1945, if we ever talk about 1945. Oh, um, we will. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned that the... Um, the German V weapons were terror weapons used only against civilians because that's all they could be used against. Um, we'll talk about the American bombing campaigns against the Japanese because the civilian casualties there were um, apocalyptic. There, there's yeah. very few words to describe it. It was terrible. Yeah. Um, but we'll we'll go over that, and then finally we'll get to the end of World War Two. And yeah. then we'll do the Cold War. Maybe not. <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah. If we're we're splitting World War Two into six, no, seven parts, I think the Cold War would be. Uh... Oh, you never know. Um, <laughs> anyway, hey. any any questions about yes. 1944 Part yes. Two? I have yeah, a question. Go ahead. Okay, so you mentioned that uh, heroic charge at the Battle of Leyte Leyte Gulf or whatever it is. Yes. Um, so Pickett's Charge has its own name, and uh, that's a different war. But, you know, mm -hmm. it's uh, remembered as uh, the way that we won the Gettysburg, or part of the way that Gettysburg was won. Um, yeah. Is there any name for this? Uh, or where, where are the movie rights for this, uh, this uh, charge? This one needs to be a movie. I mean, I mean if, if done right, this one could be amazing, um, because it was, I mean, this is the stuff of legend. Um. I don't know that there is I mean, the engagement was the battle off Samar. Uh, the task force was Taffy three and the, um, I mean, there, there are so many moments where, um, you know, you had people acting in, in the highest possible way in the extremes of combat. Uh, the captain of the USS Johnson, Johnston, one of the destroyers, in fact, the destroyer that was closest to the Japanese when when they were uh, revealed, um, got on the uh, the communication system to his crew and said, uh, basically, uh, I'm going to paraphrase a little, but he said, you know, major enemy force. And then his words, uh, his quote was, we will do what damage we can. Um, and that was it. And they charged. 
and awesome. they did a phenomenal amount of damage. But they knew that this was uh, this was a, a, a hopeless endeavor, and it truly was. Uh, and it's a miracle, uh, in in every literal sense of that word, that the that the Japanese commander withdrew. Um, if he had not, it could have been it would have been disastrous for the American landing forces. Uh, eventually Halsey would have come back down by that time the Japanese would have left and we would have had to figure out how to reconstitute an invasion force after untold thousands of Marines and soldiers would have been killed just in the Gulf uh, in their landing craft. So coincidentally or not, it is 78 years ago today that the Battle of Samar happened. Oh, yes. Oh, wow. October 25th. That's right. Yep. Mm. So and the the three destroyers that were involved, the USS Johnston, the USS Howell, the USS Hearman, and the destroyer escort USS Samuel B. Roberts. Um, most, if not all, I know most of them, um, continue to have their names on U.S. Navy ships to this day. Um, they They will... They will live in immortality for the U.S. Navy. So, mm. what were the casualty rates on those uh, the ships that sank during the charge? Significant. Um, couple hundred sailors on board each destroyer. Couple hundred casualties on each destroyer. Mm. So, um, that is awesome. I'm glad that we learned about it, and I think there needs to be a movie made in honor of it. Yeah. So let's get well, I'll, on that. I'll Tim, point out you can the do. the thing that I pointed out with um you know when we talked about the Dam Buster raid and the movies like the Death Star run from Star Wars. Yeah. You know, movies are great, but these people actually did this stuff. Oh yeah, for sure. So, anyway. All right. Well thanks, Matt. Um I think that'll uh, wrap us up today. Uh we will be completing this miniseries or just series uh hopefully by the end of the year maybe we've uh, only but, we've only got one one year left and it's uh it's not even a full year yes <laughs> all right well join us back for that and if this is the first podcast you've listened to in this series of world war ii podcast re-listen to the other ones you're going to get the whole uh, the whole story essentially so um thanks and, and we'll be back again next podcast